0: I had a moment where I was in the middle of the newsroom and someone came over to me and was like, don't fuck this up. And I was (laughs) like, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good, it's going to be great.
1: Kyle, do you know who that was?
0: Who that is? Because
2: we're in the show now, it's present tense.
1: Well, anyway, that was Aaron Edwards, who is a mobile editor of BuzzFeed News, which means he is in charge of curating the content in the BuzzFeed News app and also, you know, writing the nice little quippy uh, push notifications that you get on your cell phone.
2: It is interesting to hear him describe how push notifications work and how much thought actually goes into them because it's so much more than just a feature that you immediately try and disable on any app you (laughs) install.
1: Anyway, he talks to us about that, talks to us about a bunch of his writing uh, at the AP, at Digital First Media's Project Thunderdome, which is such a great name. for the New York Times, where he was a James Reston reporting fellow, uh, he has this wild story. He was 20 years old, can't even buy a beer, and he had a cover story, A1 above the fold in the New York Times.
2: And I had to ask what A1 meant at the time because I didn't know. It's it's because not Steaksauce. Actual physical papers anymore, it's, but it means that it was printed. It's the first thing you see when you pick up that paper. Right? Section
1: A, page one, above the fold means that it's on the top rather than the bottom uh super impressive uh you know he was actually telling a little bit about the story in the little you know very very short intro you heard uh and he also tells us the story of when he came out to his mom and she called his priest who uh, had some different ideas let's get right to it so welcome aaron hey <laughs> how's it going
0: i'm pretty good i'm pretty good how are you
1: i'm okay so, I mean, let's just jump right into it. Uh, I really want to know what a mobile editor at BuzzFeed News does.
0: Yeah, so that title is kind of one of the many roles in journalism that really didn't exist maybe even three years ago. Basically, I was hired on a team of editorial people at BuzzFeed to build the BuzzFeed News app. So one day, our betters at BuzzFeed basically said, we should make a news app. And they first hired Stacey Marie Ishmael from the FT. And she put together a team of about four other editorial people from different parts of the industry to help create this product. So I was one of those four people, and we built the BuzzFeed News app, the BuzzFeed News newsletter, and are currently working on a number of other projects and things like that. So my day-to-day involves anything from working with product people to reporters, editors, writers, and also doing things like push notifications, general editorial strategy for mobile.
1: Like you write the push notifications?
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: And are there any, like, crazy rules that you've figured out you know, things that work better
0: than others? Oh, yeah. We actually had this very strong leaning to learning in public when we were building things for our team. So we would blog about a lot of things we worked on. I read so a lot of those. Yeah, so our team would write things about, you know, what is the perfect length for a push notification, what kind of tone works best for certain audiences. And we kind of just geeked out for six months building this product and put it out there in public to show people what we were doing as we were doing it.
1: Now, what was the logic behind that? Cause I, I was thinking about it and I mean, there's like several different approaches uh, or reasons that you would have taken that approach. You know, A, you get publicity for the app. B, you are just like an open book, it's transparent. You're showing other people how to do their job better. Um, and C, uh, you just wanna take tips from other people as well and make it a transparent process so that you can make it as you know good as possible and the page views can't hurt. Um, so it, was it all of the above?
0: I would say that our main driving force behind it was realizing that BuzzFeed is a place that has a lot of resources, and a lot of places that are trying to do work similar to what we're doing don't. And there is a huge public benefit to putting out information into the world and saying, hey, we tried this out already. Here's what we learned that what works. Here's what we learned does not work. And it helps people kind of not make the same mistakes over and over again. Like We're mm-hmm. all kind of working toward the same goal of making journalism accessible, making it easy to find things that you're intrigued by and delighted by. And it's okay to bring everyone along the journey with you. Like even though we're competing directly with places, we're also all answering and trying to solve the same problems. So why not put some of those answers out there?
2: You were a part of building the Breaking News app as well, right?
0: I was a part of uh, building what is now, we call it V3, so the most recent iteration of the app. But the app had had been living for years when I joined the team. I joined the team at a time that they were relaunching it as this new brand, new product and everything like that. So I was a part of that.
2: Was there anything that you took from that process and did a little bit differently while you were building the BuzzFeed News app?
0: Yeah, so Breaking News is a product that is mainly focused around push notifications. It is, you know, solely powered by push notifications. It's uh, a customizable app where you can get as granular as, you know, Mount Everest. If you want to get notifications on Mount Everest, you can do that if you want, I believe. Um, so it's a kind of app that really is meant for people who are really acutely interested in personalization, and we wanted to build a product that did some of that, but a little bit more of a top level experience. So the personalization that we introduced in the BuzzFeed News app was not as granular as breaking news is, but it still kind of got at the idea that people had different areas of interest that we wanted to break out from just having one general audience to send every push notification to. So we created things like sports. Um, U.S. news, world news, we have a bucket. We call them buckets um, for FIFA, for the 2016 elections. And we've been able to use those as kind of playing grounds to experiment with how audiences respond to certain news. So I think that was one of the biggest lessons I took over from, from Breaking News to BuzzFeed was just the idea that you can use these segmented audiences as testing ground for experiments and for building a lot of interest around, around a product.
1: That's something that's kind of been going on for a while with like segmenting email newsletters or like Facebook ads or, uh, I mean, this is something that people opt into, so it's a little different. But um, what what apps other than BuzzFeed are you seeing that are doing this like really
0: well? Yeah, I think that uh, actually apps that were not news apps were doing a lot with customization before news apps started doing it. So you know when it came to you know customizing things and like Facebook Notify, for instance, was an app that came out recently that offered a lot of customization options to people based on the things they like to read and but facebook notify is not specifically a news app necessarily you can get things from you know uh, publications that focus on food publications Mm -hmm. that focus on travel and lifestyle and things like that so um but i think aside from us i would say the new york times did a lot of you know interesting experiments and work around customization from a little more, you know, traditional sections, so like business and technology. We kind of follow in that same, that same tone as well with how we segment our audiences. Um, but the Times did this really well. Um, I want to say USA Today's app also had some customization, but I'm not really sure how that played out. I tend to not really know, you know, what kind of alerts I'm getting depending on the, you know, the day. But I think they do have customization in their app. Um, what, what
1: about apps like Quartz where they don't segment, but they give you this really unique, cool, intuitive experience?
0: and it seems like you're just texting with a friend, but you're learning the news as you do it. Right. Quartz actually does segment. They have, um, I believe, four different opt-ins, but they're a little bit different, and they actually did this really smart thing where instead of labeling them, you know, as specifically as, like, world news or sports news or things like that, they tried this really interesting (laughs) approach where they labeled it in a more general sense. So one of their opt-ins, I think, is um, something like uh, important... I want to say it's called or something like that, and the other one is like interesting and fun or something. I'm not, I'm not sure the exact exact wording, but they tried to just group stories and group news more so in a feeling and mm-hmm. a context as opposed to an actual section, which I thought was really interesting. We have a one again bucket that we called Need to Know, which is kind of the closest to that. Yeah, it used to be called Major Breaking News, but it has a new name, Need to Know, which is more how you might talk to someone about information, like this is something you need to know right now?
1: Well, something that I think is really interesting with what Quartz is doing is that um, and maybe BuzzFeed is doing it too. I actually don't know the answer, but uh, oftentimes they will lead me to an article that was not written on Quartz. Um, and I don't really know why they do that. Um, I mean, they capture me in the app and I keep coming back, and that's not going to change, but why not drive all the traffic to their own, you know, their own content?
0: I think that Quartz made that smart decision because, and we actually do this as well, we link out to stories from all across the internet. And we're not, I guess, you know, specifically only going to point people to BuzzFeed stories in all situations. If we are in a breaking news situation and we know that The Guardian has a much Mm -hmm. more fleshed out piece because they've owned a certain story and they've broken news on it, we're going to point to them first. Um, Maybe later down the road, if we write our own version of it, we might swap that out into the app. But um, this actually does an audience disservice. If you wait an extra 30 minutes for the outlet that's not really following the story as closely when you could, you know, be a good citizen and point them to the place that actually broke the news to begin with. So we do try to be, you know, judicious about if a place has an exclusive Mm -hmm. or has a story that's more akin specifically to the organization, we're going to send people to that story as well. And I think it's beneficial because people like seeing a diversity of of sources and they like a product that sort of acknowledges that they are not the only living thing on the internet. And people respect that and understand why we do it.
2: That's kind of cool. So there is almost inherently in the app a sort of journalistic integrity that you guys try to maintain because you know that if something is breaking and someone has a better cut, you send people outwards. Yeah, is of there course. Is there like a, a hierarchy of decision making that goes into that process when you see something?
0: It d- kind of depends on a number of things. Like when we're discussing, you know, should we send this push to the BBC or should we send it to <laughs> the Guardian, or should we send it to the New York Times? I think we're looking at a number of things. The number one thing, actually, that we're looking at is is it mobile-friendly. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a story can be really well-written, really well-done, fleshed out, but if it's not something someone can read on their phone immediately and it's crappy on mobile, we're not going to send people to it. And so I think places are realizing that that's kind of a necessity now. It's not really, you know, a, a side factor to your journalism. It needs to be the first thing that you think about. Um, so that's one of the first, first things that we consider... And then aside from that, we're always going to wonder, you know, you know, is this a story that we're eventually going to have a really good write through on as well? Um, Do we have the capacity to wait for that? And, you know, are we, you know, doing a disservice to our audience by waiting an extra few minutes to send them to a BuzzFeed story versus sending them to a fleshed out story from another publication that already has broken that news? Mm
2: -hmm. Is there any concern with the redirection of sending them to maybe a story that hasn't been fully verified yet?
0: We verify that. Um, it, we definitely have a seg- like a segmented section of organizations that we trust, and you know we tend to stick to those for the most part. So this gets a little bit tricky sometimes with international news. Like a lot of outlets sometimes are a little bit a little bit sketchier if you can't verify what they're doing right away. But sometimes we'll wait for them to maybe get written off of through Reuters or through an outlet that's a little bit more. Um, a little bit more our speed and something that we know we can rely on. So,
1: yeah,
0: it's kind of like uh, when you watch the newsroom; they have to verify everything three times or whatever. Um,
1: yeah.
2: So okay. It all comes back to newsroom.
1: <laughs> Always. I love that show.
2: I'm like not. I'm I'm not that happy that uh, you know it ended. So how do you, as someone who's involved in the creation of news on a daily basis, how do you feel about newsroom?
0: I shamefully love that show, and it took me a while to acknowledge that I love that show because. I don't know. Part of me felt like I should be more skeptical of it. Like this is not actually how newsrooms work. Like this is not really what goes on. It's like over dramatized. Oh yeah, the
1: dialogue is awful in the first. Yeah, season.
0: but I was just so hooked and so into it. Like I don't know, the minute that I saw Marsha Gay Harden, I was like, I'm, I'm in this. Like I'm done. It was, you done. Know. It was yeah. so good. Um. So yeah, I, I think ultimately what made me really love that show was just you know it kind of it also lived in this fantasy world of. You know, journalistic exceptionalism that people, like when we first thought about going into journalism, and when I say we, I mean just like collectively journalists in general, um I, I want to say everyone kind of has that story where they had the gleam in their eye and they're just like, I want to be this really, you know, vigilant fact hound and you know, chase these wonderful stories and tell these things about corruption and break down barriers and all that kind of thing. And the newsroom kind of speaks in that language. And it's funny because that's not actually how newsrooms talk to each other. Like, we're actually just kind of normal, geeky, strange human beings that somehow made their way to the same organization and are trying to tell good stories as we go along. But we're not standing up in the middle of the newsroom being like, I just saw the AP alert. Do we have the reporter <laughs> on the ground? It's like, John, are you ready? Do you got this? I'm like, I don't know, man. I'm not really here. And it's like, that doesn't really happen. Yeah, you still have to sip your coffee and stretch. And There's you know, no role right.
2: McAvoy at BuzzFeed. Yeah. Um, <laughs> somebody there's, there, there's gotta be at least one.
0: There is like a caricature of a, like a Will McAvoy at BuzzFeed, but it's, you know, it's kind of a joke, but, um, but I know I think what was really fun about the show is that it, like I said, it lived in this fantasy world that we all at some point I think thought journalism was going to be like. Well,
1: talk to us about that because you are kind of at like the forefront of, of new media nowadays. Um, I mean you, but you're doing a lot less actual writing and, and journalism. Um, but that's, has not always been the case. And I know you're really young, but at the same time, like you've had a career that's lasted for, you know, a while in, in, in the journalism world. Cause you've been doing this stuff since like the second you got to college. Um, so you at age 21, was it, uh, with the a one story in, in the New York times, uh, I was
2: 20, I was 20,
1: it was 20. He couldn't <laughs> even drink. And he had a cover story, section a page one in the New York times, um,
2: I remember the topic. It was about the sharp uptick in the homeless population in New York City due Mm -hmm. to uh, the end of the Advantage
0: program. Right. right? Um,
1: So how how did that feel? You were twenty years old, and and you achieved something that most journalists have never done.
0: It felt really awesome. I'm not gonna lie. Like I mean, I (laughs) the day that I wrote that story and the editor who I was working on the story with, you know, it started off as a very small day assignment type thing. He wanted me to get the recent numbers on homelessness in the city because they were being released around that time for the month. And he wanted me to compare it to the year before that and do kind of a standard, here's where New York City is with homelessness. And when I was looking through the numbers, I ended up finding out that they were opening shelters in different places. And we thought it was only one shelter that was being opened. So we kind of wanted to get like, you know, a color, uh, some color from this area where this homeless shelter is going to be opened. And you know, give a human voice to the fact that the number was up. But then we kept finding that there were more shelters being opened at this very rapid rate over the course of a, a few months, and he just kept giving me more time to look and try to find if this was a trend, if it was something that was continuously happening, and found out that it was something that was happening, you know, pretty uh, consistently over the past few months at the time. And so, so yeah, we we talked about the story, talked about what the story was going to evolve into, and basically became you know kind of like a mini quick look at the fact that the city was going behind the backs of a lot of communities and opening shelters in these buildings shoving homeless people into them and not really doing a lot of oversight and that story kind of just bubbled up and evolved and it was pitched to the front page and ended up making it and then i had a moment where i was in the middle of the newsroom and someone came over to me and was like don't fuck this up (laughs) <laughs> and I was like, I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. It's gonna be great.
2: <laughs> I'm gonna be okay, right?
0: <laughs> right. Yeah. Like I and I think what happens to a story when it starts moving to the front page of the Times, it's like things just escalate a lot of quick, like so quickly, mm-hmm. like more fact checkers start looking at it, and more people are talking about it, and you have to like get a lot of things, a lot of things tighter than they were before. I had to like nationalize the story a little bit very quickly, and so it was a lot of fast moving parts at the time
2: what was that timeline like like what how much time were you given in between when you found out it was a front page story and when it went to publication like how much scrambling did you have to do to make that a national thing
0: um i would say i had four hours wow um there was uh because it was i think it was originally gonna be published on friday in the metro section then they had pitched it for saturday for the front page um and so i had like that business day to basically call people who i needed to call who were not going to be around on saturday and uh i did that um you know called up the dhs again to make sure they can get a final comment at the department of homeless services and then it was on its way so, so yeah you, off to the
1: races. you were a james rested fellow um right. which for anyone who doesn't know there's only four of them every year it's it's basically a four-month fellowship um at the new york times um so what did that, I mean, you you obviously were really successful. You had, like, 40-plus stories published. You had your A1 story. You had the the front of the Metro page, like, three or four times. Um, I mean, did part of you think that they were going to just, like, pick you up and hire you?
0: Um, I, I'd never really thought about that until, like, the very end when I was realizing, oh, they're going to, like, kick me out at some point and I have to find a job. <laughs> um, I got really good advice, actually, in the middle of that internship because there was a point where I was getting very nervous about me being there in general. It's it's a very big place and being a young person there, especially like a young person of color who's like very much the minority. It kind of feels like a lot of people are looking at you and you have a lot of expectations you have to live up to and things like that. But the advice that I got from editor at the time um, was that I needed to stop focusing on that and just do the work and Mm -hmm. put my head down and focus on what I was doing. And, Once I did that, everything else kind of fell into place. And so I kind of had resolved in myself that, like, I'm not here to get hired by the New York Times. I'm here to spend four months doing the best work that I can do with the resources of this newspaper behind me. And whatever that leads to, so be it.
1: I remember, uh, I mean, I'm sure you must have been geeking out, but I remember sending you, like, text messages while you were there. Like, hey, (laughs) like, have you seen David Carr in the elevator? And... (laughs) Uh, and, I mean, you were just like, yeah, I mean, I've, I've walked by him a couple times. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, oh, man, what was that like? Because a lot of these people were probably your heroes.
0: Yeah, I mean, yes, but also no. I mean, I kind of came into journalism in this very unorthodox way in that, you know, I didn't do it in high school. I wasn't a super journalism nerd beforehand. I picked journalism because... I was originally going to be, like, doing acting or singing or something like that, and my mom and I sat down and were like, what's a career that could maybe actually earn you money? (laughs) And, of course, I picked journalism, (laughs) of all the things that I could have landed on. But in reality, we sat down and I was like, you know, I like to write. I like to tell stories. And she was like, you know, maybe what about journalism? Like, you should try, you know, you like like writing. You like piecing things together and looking into things and stuff. That could be a good thing for you. So it wasn't the kind of thing that I felt like I was – Born to do and had been following people for a long time in my life. I kind of jumped into it in college mm-hmm. and just kind of did the things that I felt I needed to do to be successful in this particular thing and then found a passion along the way. So speaking
1: yeah. of college, uh, Aaron, um, Aaron went to the same school as Kyle and I. Uh, um, we all we went to Ithaca College. And, yeah. and Aaron was Are we actually,
2: lake monsters now? Did they I, rename us? Are I we hope, the squirrels? I really hope we're squirrels. Uh, I, I'm just going to say we're Bombers. For those who don't know, <laughs> Ithaca went through a very public, uh, very failed renaming process and opened the voting to the public, and the options were not pretty. Um, I think we had to choose between the Lake Monsters, the Squirrels, and there was a third one that was equally ridiculous.
0: I think it, the Bombers were the third one. The Bombers between the, the three, third one? I think I think it's like either stick with the original, Lake Monster, or squirrel. the squirrels. I could I, be
2: wrong. I personally but.
1: voted for the Lake I have to say, they're, they're all so bad that they're good.
2: I mean, Lake Monster would have been okay. Right. There's a lake. It's a Cayuga Lake. It's a Finger Lake. There are no monsters in the lake. I don't even think there's anything poisonous in the lake. I don't see what's wrong with bombers. But What,
0: what was it's happening? A, what it's happened?
1: a World <laughs>
2: War II reference, right? I don't even II know how it started. Right? I have no idea. I, right. do,
0: I think that there was some controversy on campus about bombers being insensitive. Um Ah. Just because, I mean, at, at the time, obviously, there's a lot of, you know, international conflict going on. And mm-hmm. I think people did not like the fact that we were still named after something that directly referenced war.
1: It's fair. Ithaca loves to argue. Um, so <laughs> so you you were the editor in chief of the Ithacan, which is this like really um, lauded newspaper uh, in you know the college newspaper industry, uh, partly because of you. Uh, while you were the editor, you uh, the, the newspaper won the best non-daily news college newspaper in the country. And you had uh, an award yourself for, for being the editor, right? Was it the National Journalism Foundation or something?
0: Um, I think that I was up for one, the student leader one. Yes. I think I got fourth place.
1: No, no, I read on. I read you got second place. Second place. I think I got placed. Okay,
0: <laughs> it's good enough. I mean, that's
2: still sure. it's still really impressive. So, what was it uh, like taking the the newspaper through that transitional process to go from being so? What that was mostly you, right? Going from being a print focused to a digital focused. Uh, a lot of it. Production.
0: A lot of it did happen in that year. I definitely cannot take the full credit for it, though. There were editors before me who had been driving us into the digital age before I actually got there. But the year that we you know, won that award and did a lot, was definitely the year a lot of it it propelled into the heart and soul of how the paper was run. But it was ridiculously fun, I guess. I was very scared and afraid of running an organization, and I felt that I, you know, really wasn't quite ready for it. But in the end, I had a really great staff and people who were very dedicated to making the product and making the paper amazing that year. And we all just rallied around each other and made it a very positive experience. So it was fun coming into work every day. It was really exciting to tell the stories we were going to tell. And it ultimately made me very happy to look at the body of work that we put together that whole year. And I still, to this day, am using things that I learned there. um, What are some of
2: those things? Like, what are some of the lessons that you took forward into stuff like working with the Breaking News app as it's redeveloped, even forward into BuzzFeed?
0: The biggest thing that i learned was learning how to fail fast and jumping back from that the paper ran on a weekly schedule for the most part but we were transitioning into working as a daily and in the process of doing that basically meant restructuring an entire organization of about 100 editors and writers and reporters and photographers into thinking more of a daily structure and in the process of that happening i think a lot of things fail a lot of things don't work out and it's really daunting to try to take an establishment or an institution that's used to running one way and turning it completely 180 into another direction and say, okay, we're going to start doing things this way. So I think I kind of learned the value of taking risk in that year in that job. And this whole landscape of media right now and the jobs that I've taken since graduating have all had this consistent thread of high risk and high reward. My first job, everyone was laid off after... A year and some change of the place being in existence and being fully staffed and people were looking for jobs and you know moved to New York and had to change their lives completely after getting laid off and things like that but it was a high risk and the high reward was also the fact that we developed this fantastic network of people who were very dedicated to experimenting and trying new things a lot of those folks are now in jobs at places like the New York Times or, at, you know, mm. NBC or BuzzFeed or wherever, doing the things that we came together to do at the time, which was I'm referencing Digital First Media, yeah. Project Thunderdome. I'm I'm constantly
1: running into people in my role as a book publicist that know you from in some capacity. Um, you wrote a piece with Adrienne LaFrance. Uh, you uh, worked on The Ithacan with uh, Megan. I'm blanking on her name, but she's at The Atlantic now. Um, in in any case, I I know that you, uh, um, seem to attract talent. So, I mean, that's awesome. You know, it's, it's a good trait to have. And it it seems like everywhere you go, you know, you either add to the pool or you attract more, you know, talent to that pool. Um, however, you said something to me recently where I, I think the quote was, um, I do not consider myself a writer. Mm hmm. Can you explain that? Because you've written you know, pretty prolifically in the past.
0: Um, yeah, I think that statement mainly came from... Okay, so backtracking. There was a point in my career where I kind of made a very stark shift. And it was right after I finished the Fellowship of the Times. And I was looking at all the available jobs, which were very few. But... I was looking at, you know, what could be my next step, and in my mind I had it set that I was going to be a writer. Like, I was going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer, I'm going to be a writer, and a reporter. And the second that I stopped thinking in that one sense, this whole world opened up. And there was this world of really interesting jobs in product and in the mix between product and editorial, the intersection of tech and traditional journalism, and I found that those areas I actually gravitate to a lot more, and am, you know, really well suited to be working in those spaces. So I think when I say I'm not a writer, I think it comes from a place of saying that my main, my main jam is not really writing day to day. I still love to write, and I still do it whenever I can. I write every day, actually, um, in some capacity, and non-work related as well. Um, I don't publish a lot of it, mm-hmm. but you know that's Yet. still a big, <laughs> that's still a big part of my DNA and, and who I consider myself to be, just as a human being. Yeah. But in terms of like how I make my bread and how I, I can't believe I just said that. In terms of like how <laughs> so I, you know, you in it. terms of how I go about my life and how I like earn a living.
1: But you have you have also written some pretty moving things, and that that you know I wouldn't call like a, like a blog post about the BuzzFeed News app, you know. Um and some of it is is non traditional journalism like your your piece for BuzzFeed with a bunch of gifs all about you know explaining what a clapback is um <laughs> which was brilliant by the way, but also uh shout out
0: to Ira medicine yeah
1: <laughs> it was a really good piece and and i could uh maybe i 'm wrong I'll, you can quiz me later, but I think I could pick out where your contributions were and where <laughs> his were um However, you also wrote this piece that I want to talk about, um, about going to your grandfather's funeral in Jamaica, because it was something that was a little different than anything else I'd ever seen you write. And, I mean, it was a really moving piece. Um, So, if you don't mind, you know, kind of walk us through that process, why you wrote it, when you
0: wrote it, what it was about, um, what you thought you would get from it, that kind of thing. Yeah, so the piece is titled... I might get this wrong, but I think it's my grandfather sits on a hill that leads to heaven. Um, And basically, in 2014, my grandfather passed away. And at the time, he was living in Jamaica, the island, with my grandmother. They had moved back to the island after everyone in their family kind of dispersed and started their own families. They felt that it was a time to kind of go back to the motherland. And they've been living together just the two of them in a house that they were building on this hill in Jamaica, um, in a very remote part of the island, so like up in the bushes. You have to drive up these really confusing roads to get there. It used to be that you weren't actually allowed in the town unless you had someone who was of the (laughs) descent, a descendant of the town to escort you up there. Now they open it up to tourists and other people to come through. Um, so, yeah, but we're the descendants of this group of people in Jamaica called Maroons. So slaves were marooned in the Jamaican islands and established their own, independent, their own independence from the British and established their own colonies and their own independent states in Jamaica. So this town is actually an independent state that's not technically a part of, like, Jamaica, the uh, government of Jamaica. It has its own internal governance, um, kind of to its own detriment, actually, because it's not very rich, doesn't have a lot of money but they are a proud and very stubborn people. So my grandfather died. I went back to this town, which I'd only been in maybe once or twice before in my life, and went there to bury him. So my mother, my sister, everyone in my family that was close to him came together um, in a very rare occasion to, to bury him and to put him to rest at the top of this hill. So when I was there, it was really strange because i'm definitely more of a city guy i don't do well in hot weather in general i'm not the hiking type or anything like that so i was physically uncomfortable in this space but i was also emotionally uncomfortable there because i was being introduced to family members who i didn't really know who i didn't really think knew who i was who i felt kind of disingenuous coming to their space and their their home that they had built for so long in order to bury my grandfather because I felt like they had more claim to the area than I did. So there was a lot of different emotions that were at play at the time. And I was writing all this down while I was there just to remember everything because it was honestly some of the like the most stark emotional experiences that I'd had in my life while I was up there. And I knew that I needed to just remind myself what I was feeling, what I was going through at some point. So I wrote things down, with not with the intent of ever publishing it, Again, it was just kind of a personal exercise in remembrance and in documenting experience. And so when I came back from the funeral, I was up there for about a week. And when I came back, I was just sharing with friends, basically. to Because I, I, I think for a few weeks, I could not physically articulate to people what I experienced. They would ask, like, are you okay? Like, how are things going? And I would just not be able to tell them because I did not know how to put into words what I just experienced, really. Um, and the reason for that is, like I said, it's it's this place that's just, like, it's scorching hot. There's a lot going on in terms of just, you know, rich culture when it comes to a funeral there. They, you know, pull out a band. There's, there are drums. There's this sort of party they throw a few nights before the funeral where they play loud music and they kind of, like, prepare to, you know, send the spirit off into into wherever. So it's it's, it's this very visceral experience of, like, you know, putting someone to rest. And so I would start sharing these notes with friends if they asked me how I was doing. I'd just, like, give them what was, at the time, this very shoddy framework of an essay. And one of my friends said, I think you should think about publishing this. Like, this could be something that people might want to read. And um, I toyed around with the idea, and then eventually I sent it to Saeed Jones, actually. Um, This is before I actually was working at BuzzFeed. And I had touched it up, made it into an actual essay, um actually read it so before I pitch it to Said, I read it at a, a writer salon that um a mentor of mine was holding, um Nicole Hannah Jones, who works at the New York Times magazine, had a gathering of black writers who she knew um in New York who got together and we were sharing pieces and just writing writing and reading things with each other and it was this wonderful space where we felt very safe and very protected and very known and seen. And so it was the first time that I actually started thinking of it as an essay, because I read it to people there. And then I got more support and encouragement to put it out into the world and actually publish it. Um, so once I read it there, I pitched it to Saeed, who then ushered it along through um, Doris Shafrir, and then it was published in January of last year. So it was like a very long process for this essay to actually be published, because the funeral was in April of 2014, And then the essay itself didn't get published until January
1: 2015.
0: Mm -hmm. So, and what was the reaction like? Um, It was overwhelmingly positive. I think I heard from several people who have Jamaican ancestry or heritage or are Jamaican themselves, um, like living in Jamaica, who told me about similar experiences they had. Um, A lot of kind of like first-generation Jamaican-American people who would talk to me about also feeling kind of like. They didn't quite have the same ownership over the land as their parents or their grandparents did, and going back there and going through those same feelings of, you know, kind of being out of place or feeling like this isn't a space that I can say is my own, and how a funeral kind of forces you to start to reject those feelings and actually feel like this is land that you share a spirit with now, you share blood with, you share um, a soul with it. So, so yeah, I think that was. The general response I got a lot of people just um being very like just thanking me for putting it out there and
1: now I don't know if there's any comparison that can be made between the two but with this and with your your a1 story with the New York Times you know with the New York Times I'm sure you kept a bunch of issues of it you know do you have one in your house right now is it framed
0: um they have the tradition at the Times actually where when you get your first a1 story they give you the plate that they run through the press that is oh wow cool. um so that's,
1: that's yeah so <laughs> have two people ever gotten one
0: um what do you mean two people like, like
1: like two people with an a1 story for the first time
0: um i don't know actually there are like many plates there's not like just one that okay. goes through. but like yeah so you, I, I remember there was like a
2: nobody's had to split a plate yeah. no no
0: no no, no. there's like this this old old time editor who was there had been there for years like came over to my desk and was like he was like <laughs> it was wonderful he said you know i didn't get my first day one of the times until i was 40 years old young man like you've done a very great thing today <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> thank you sir <laughs> that's and he so like awesome. handed me the plate and i was like oh this is great and is it
1: hanging on your wall
0: um no it's not it's very hard to find a frame that fits it because it's <laughs> like a it's a long sheet okay so i don't know that's a really poor excuse for just me being lazy but uh, it
1: happens yeah um it's yeah.
2: something you're allowed to be lazy about, though. Yeah, yeah. Like there's, it's there. I'm not gonna. It, throw it
1: out. So, so, um, and this is like a very existential question, but like, what do you do with an essay that's published online that you're really proud of? Like, do you just save the link in in your bookmarks or something?
0: This is really interesting because I actually regard the notes that led to the essay more so as a thing that's more important for me to salvage than the essay itself, because, like I said, when I wrote that for myself it wasn't with the intent of publishing it the reason that i went through the process of doing that was because i needed to have an actual like physical and emotional documentation of what i was experiencing because i knew that i would either like through trauma or whatever forget it or like be blocking whatever out that i'd forget it um so those like physical notes that i wrote are actually the things that i feel more i don't know attached to than i feel Mm -hmm. the actual essay because the essay like i wrote for people to read Mm -hmm. And I had to change certain things to make sure that it was accessible for a readership. The notes themselves are just like drawings and scrawlings and things like that. It's like me at 3am on my grandmother's bed being like, I just hugged my grandmother. Like, and that makes no sense to someone without any context of when I wrote that or what I was feeling. In yeah. terms
2: in terms of the notes and the drawings and the scrawlings, was there any part of the process where you considered including it as a way to, because to, this is a very personal essay, Right. And it almost feels like something like that would be well served towards this specific piece, this venue, to give us more just insight into that world.
0: Yeah, I think that, and this is something that I think a lot of people have been talking about when it comes to personal essay, is just how much do you put out into the world and how much do you share with people? And I think that it's okay to be reserved about certain mm-hmm. things. I think it's okay to hold back on certain things. Like, even though, yeah, you know, the visuals of, My handwriting for somebody might be another way to pull them into the story and make them feel like they're there with me. But I felt that I did enough of a good job of articulating that through the words. They didn't really need any more of that. Um, I think that Jamaica and just my heritage and my family is a topic that I don't think I'll stop writing about personally or publishing about. So, like, maybe down the road in another context, those things might make sense, like in a book or in, you Mm -hmm. know, more of a long form um, space, but that essay, I think the words kind of spoke for themselves and the pictures that I also decided to include, I think also helped the story along for
1: sure. All right. So, uh, you know, the reason that we bring people on the show is, is, you know, a very specific theme about, um, you know, the one story that writers cannot tell. And uh, I know that there, you probably thought twice about, you know, the story that we were just discussing, but, um, but you wrote it and, you know, it seems like you're really happy with that decision. Um, so, but you did come prepared to tell us a story that you know you haven't told a lot of people. Um, so I, I guess we should get into it.
0: Yeah, so I guess the caveat to this story is that I will probably put it out into the world in some capacity at some point, but I have not. And there is a very specific reason for that. And I'll get to that. But when I was about 13 or 12 years old, I was living in Georgia. And my mother and I went to a church in Georgia that was an African Methodist Episcopal church, which for most people who don't know what that means is basically code for black church, like predominantly black church in Georgia. And the congregation was uh, a mixture of sort of very super Christian black southerners and some people who had recently moved from other places to Georgia. At the time, Georgia was kind of a melting pot of a lot of other states and places. So you had a lot of people coming in from New York who wanted a slower life. Other parts up up north. So it was, a, it was kind of like a, a mixture of a lot of different people at this church. On Mother's Day, the year when I was 12 years old, I'm not sure what year that was. But on Mother's Day, the congregation has this thing where they do a youth-themed day like a sunday that's totally run by the youth so they have like a youth pastor um the children's choir sings uh the ushers are all kids and so this fell on mother's day and the youth pastor who was an older woman asked me to preach um for the congregation this day and the reason she asked me was because i guess uh, i guess i was good at bible stuff at the time um like i don't know i was a really dedicated kid when it came to Christianity and it came to just theology in general like I was always citing scriptures and reading scriptures and just really into church as a kid and I still identify as a Christian today but I was a different kind of Christian than as a kid Um, so she invited me to give this sermon and I had to write out my notes I had to pick out what scriptures I was going to reference I had to you know put an arc to it and everything like that and of course I had been watching pastors all my life preach and they were all kind of very intense people like very outspoken strong personalities and so I tried to not mimic but take things from what they did into this sermon so I decided to give a sermon about mothers and lessons and about how lessons that you learn from when you're a kid apply to when you're an adult. So I get up on the pulpit. I'm introduced by the youth pastor. like, and now we're going to hear a word from Brother Aaron, who has put this together to, you know, yada, yada, yada. And so, I don't know. I, I, and this is kind of weird to say, but, like, I was kind of this, like, golden child in the church because, I don't know, I like I said, I was very, like, bookwormy. And loved reading the Bible. I loved being at church all the time. Like, And this was really uncharacteristic of like young black boys in general. So I think a lot of people in my church kind of wanted to protect me and wanted me to stay in the space of really being focused on God and on Christianity and all these types of things. So I went up and gave this sermon and talked about family and lessons and things like that. And the one thing that I always was thinking about whenever it came to public presentation in front of this congregation in in any capacity was that not only was I a bookworm really into the Bible really dedicated to learning about Christ and everything like that but I was also a young closeted gay child and it was the first time that I think I really was holding back and understanding that I was presenting myself as one thing to my congregation but actually holding back a very strong piece of myself from everybody And this was becoming very prevalent at that age, so like 12, 13. At that point, you kind of cannot ignore the fact that you're starting to have feelings for either women or men or both or whatever. So I gave this sermon and, you know, it was received really well and stuff. And I actually, I called my mom earlier today because I needed her to, like, give me some uh, backgrounder on what I couldn't remember or whatever. But she told me she was very proud of me at the time, and she was like, you know, i I asked her, like, you know, what do you remember about this this sermon? And she was like, I just remember being one of the many times that I was very proud of you. And I was like, okay, I need like more specifics. That like, my what mom. else happened? <laughs> um, but um, but yeah. So I mean, so that happened. And then two years later, um, my mother was pregnant with my sister Eliana, and she got into a car accident very close to the end of her pregnancy that actually forced her into labor. And the doctors had to perform a C-section on her to get Eliana get Eliana out safely. The person who she had a collision with was also a member of this church, and everyone visited him when he was he was in the hospital. Maybe for like two or three days, something like that. So everyone came to visit him. The pastor came to visit him, all the deacons, all the congregation members, everything like that. And maybe two people came, went to visit my mom because, as she put it, at least in her eyes, she was this out of wedlock mother. Again, who, even though she was really dedicated to the church and really did all these things in church and uh, volunteered her extra time and everything like that, she was getting side eyes and sneers and all this kind of stuff. Even though her son was such a bright, shining star in the church and doing all these great things in school and, you know, probably going to go to a really good college. In this one moment of distress, they never really showed up for her. So I don't know. I tie those two things together because. There was this kind of this apex of an experience in church. Like being offered a pulpit in a church is a very special thing and a very, you know, protected thing. And then to have those same people turn around and not be there for the mother of that child who you gave that pulpit to was like this dichotomy that I couldn't quite navigate for a long time. So, you know, when I talked to my mom about just my upbringing in the church and sort of me coming out to her as gay at the time I didn't come out to her until I was like 15 years old. So around the time that Eliana was born and she actually called my pastor to come to our apartment to talk to me about it because she didn't know how to really deal with it. We had a very warm moment when I came out to her where she hugged me and she said, I will love you no matter what. And I thought everything was fine. But the next day she called my pastor from the same church who came to our apartment and sat me down and basically ran down my list of options for what I could do um, moving forward. And one of them was basically to become a eunuch and like dismember my man parts in order to focus on God. Um, and he said people do this as a way to you know steal their souls and focus on like steal as an S T E E L not steal like take away but to steal their souls and to focus on Christ. And we don't want you to move away from the things that you've done all these years in the church and we want you to stay focused and we want you to not make a decision that's gonna be negative for you. And even my mom at that point was looking at him like, I did not call you here to tell my son to cut off his balls. Like, this is not the kind Jeez. of conversation we're gonna have right now.
1: This was only like five or six years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Well, 10 years ago. Um,
0: mm-hmm. No, it was when I was 15. So about, yeah, about, Nine years ago, yeah. yeah. Um, wow, well, time flies when you're talking about balls. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, no, I the the trajectory of my experience in the church was so strange. Like, coming from, like I said, this kid who was given this experience to preach in front of a congregation and then being sort of shunned by that same group of people because your mother had a child out of wedlock to then being told a very drastic and extreme choice, I guess, to keep yourself focused on that path um, and to reject who you identify as, basically. So um, ultimately, I did not take his advice, (laughs) That's good. happy to report Um, (laughs) but it took a while I think for my relationship with my mother to be repaired because I think I viewed that exchange as kind of a breach of trust Um, she didn't expect him to say those things but I think it still kind of created a little bit of a distance between the two of us but since then you know she's been doing a lot of things to educate herself about you know homosexuality and about you know, the things that she used to have anxiety about around, you know, my safety or anything like that, she's learning more about how to not be worried about those things and how we live in a different world now and and that sort of thing. So um what's always comforted me, though, when it came to my mom, though, is all the things that she was worried about always stemmed to, stem back to, like, my safety. It was never a worry about me becoming, like, a vagrant or like a a bad person, it was like, I worry about my son because I don't know what the world is like and what how it's going to respond to this thing that I now learned about him so
2: so what man that is a tra- that is a trajectory that I did not see coming when you started that story. Um, what was the end of that interaction with the priest like? How did you guys part ways and then? I guess, what's the next stage in the story before you're here and you're 24 and you're ready for the New York Times?
0: Um, honestly, I don't remember how that day ended. Um, it was in the evening and I think it was close to my birthday. And it was also the last year in high school. So I was a senior. Um,
1: and just to clarify, you were you were a few years ahead.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So I was younger than most people.
1: Which explains you know, explains, you know the age gaps that, that we keep on talking about.
0: Right. Yeah. So I was, I was 15 at the time and I was a senior in high school, just about to turn 16. And most people in my grade were 17 going on 18 or 18 going on 19 in some cases. So I was already younger than most people in my grade and sort of used to being, you know, a a bit of an outcast when it came to some group things. Like, you know, when everyone tried like a cigarette for the first time, like I wasn't old enough to like buy my own, that kind of stuff. (laughs) Um, So I was kind of always used to being a little bit of an outcast in some ways, but I also found my own group and I found my friends and I found my, you know, my tribe, my, my clique and everything like that. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't remember how that day really ended. I think I kind of blacked out after he said that. Mm -hmm. And I just was so filled with rage that I was having this conversation that my mother was not stopping it. Yeah. Um, and it took me a while to understand that like it really wasn't, it wasn't her fault or anything like that, but. I was expecting to be protected in that moment and I was like, I need someone to stand up for me right now because I can't, you know, speak up to this guy. Like this is a very, you know, type A masculine pastor like from Trinidad with this like booming accent who sounds like he's like parting the Red Sea with every word that he says. And I was this very quiet, sort of timid theater kid, fifteen years old, in the closet, just came out to his mother. And is making his way and coming, coming out to other people. So once that happened, like, I just shut down completely. And, and on speak.
1: top of all that, you had this big disconnect with, you know, what you had just seen with the church's reaction to, you know, both your upbringing and your mother. And um, so I'm sure that, you know, in addition to all of those feelings, there was that sitting in the background, like you didn't trust it to begin with. Um, so, you know, why would you take their advice? I mean, is not to mention that it
0: was crazy, but. Yeah, yeah.
2: Is this something that you've tried to write about before and it just hasn't come out? Or?
0: Yeah, it hasn't come out right. I mean, I have I did this, like, pseudo-interview thing, kind of similar to this, but it was, like, a written interview about this um, with the Gay Men Project, which is a photo series that a friend of mine, Kevin Trong, um, he goes around the world and photographs gay men in different places. He started off doing it in New York, and I was one of his um, subjects. And so I talked about it briefly in that written interview, but, like, every time that I go to write it in the context of, like, an essay or something like that doesn't quite come out right. It's, like, the pieces don't really come together properly. It doesn't feel like the right time to tell it, necessarily. And that's, again, going back to your question about why I've never been able to tell the story. It's because I think that in this current climate of people finding that personal essay is a really, you know, viable tool for people to write stories that they're interested in because it's about themselves Um, but also because it opens up to different topics, um, you kind of feel a lot of pressure to just like pry away like every single thing you can about yourself in order to write interesting things. And this also ties back to why I say I'm not always like not a writer by trade or by definition because I primarily write when I feel like the story is ready to be told and has enough context and strength behind it for it to make sense to the public um so i write a lot for myself and i write you know stories to myself but unless a story feels like it's ready to be told and ready to go out into the world it's not something that i usually will publish um so yeah i think a lot about actually this might be going off topic a little bit so rein me in if i need to be um but i think a lot about like d'angelo when i think about (laughs) this because you know i'm with you so far his you know his first album obviously you know Killed it. Changed the game completely. He didn't do something else again for 14 years. But then when he came back with that Black Messiah album, again, like, rewrote scripts for an entire genre of music. And I'm not saying that, like, my goal is to do that in any capacity for, like, writing that I'm doing. But I think it puts me at ease when I feel like, you know, I don't feel the pressure to lay bare everything about my life because, you know, essaying is a, you know... I guess a medium by which people choose to write about things. I I feel like when I'm ready to tell those stories, they'll come out and they'll feel natural and they'll feel like, you know, it's time for them to be told.
2: I feel like we keep coming back to this idea uh, I've heard you say it a couple of times now, just in this hour where you don't consider yourself a writer because you're waiting to tell the story.
1: You're you're um, like the you're you're in the cocoon right now, you're incubating. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and this is this is an idea that we've heard throughout when we do interviews with everyone it, you know Clive Thompson is a journalist we interviewed who you may or may not know but he takes a, at times upwards of 5 years to tell a story. Uh he told us about one that had been germinating for like 9 years at one point. But what I want like what a, if you are waiting to tell the story I guess why don't you see yourself as a writer in the interim if you are in fact writing? Where is the distance? Where is the disconnect for you in between an actual someone you consider a writer in yourself.
0: I think that there are a lot of people who are struggling to make a living. And I'm very fortunate to be doing something that's not writing as my day to day, that I'm passionate about and that I love doing, that also earns me money. And there are a lot of people who that is not the case. People who for writing for them is literally the thing they have to do when they get up in the morning or they will like shrivel away and die. (laughs) and i respect these people so much because they are so dedicated to that specific craft and that specific you know way of telling stories that you know that's what they have to do to make a living and it's what they also have to do to feel you know okay with themselves yeah. and okay with their soul and where they where they sit in the
1: world they wake up and they write every day and you know they're not satisfied until they have something to show for it um there there's definitely a type of writer that that fits that mold um I mean, I don't think it disqualifies you from calling yourself one, but at the same time, uh, I get it. I definitely get it. So thank you for sharing that story. That was that was, you know, powerful.
0: Yeah, no totally.
2: Um if people want to find more of your work, where can they go to do it?
0: Yeah, they can go on my website, AaronMedwards.com, or on Twitter, AaronMEdwards. And uh yeah.
1: We're gonna put all that in the show notes as well if you want just an easy way to find it all. And thank you so much, Aaron. This was uh, a lot of fun.
0: Totally. Thanks for having
1: me. If you listen this far, then I'm just going to assume that you like us. So I'm going to ask something of you. Uh, we have a weekly newsletter. It is on tinyletter.com slash and if you've been reading them, you'll know that we do a second private interview with uh, each of the guests on the show where we ask them three questions. I wouldn't call it private. Okay. It well, makes it
2: sound weird. We just ask them a bunch of questions via email.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, I guess you're making me look weird now, uh, but it's, it's kind of cool. It's very and,
2: private and exclusive.
1: And Victoria Taylor from episode two uh, of Reddit and WeWork Um asks a question of each of our guests in the email we don't tell her who the guest is we just have her ask a random question and so we thought it would be cool if we told all of you to ask us a question either via twitter at wwwpodcast podcast or at kyle craner or at jeff Ombro. or you can email us at wwwpodcast.gmail.com. And what we'll do is after you hear this and send us all your questions, we'll choose our favorite and we will ask next week's guest and we'll put it into that newsletter.
2: Uh, Or, or here's a fun thing we might try and we don't know because no one sent questions in. We might ask it in the podcast. So if you send us a question, listen next week. We might ask the guest. We might not. We reserve the right to refuse. Kyle, you're getting crazy. You're getting wild. I'm just throwing it out there, man. It's happening. It's in the moment.
1: Uh Uh-oh. Oh geez, I hate moments. Anyway, thank you so much, Aaron Edwards, for coming on the show. Everybody should check him out online at AaronMedwards.com or on Twitter at AaronMEdwards. Uh or you can just read him online. Uh he has this awesome essay in BuzzFeed that we discussed that you should all check out. Um or go back, you know, three years and check out the front page of the New York Times. But anyway, uh this was Writers Who Don't Write. You can find us online at www.podcast.com. and subscribe to our newsletter at tinyletter.com slash podcast. We want to thank Aaron. I want to thank Kyle. I want to thank Ryan Dan, who did the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the show. He is from Holland Patent Public Library, which you can find online at www.hollandpatentpubliclibrary.com. And we'll see you next week.